Hi, this is Robert Ferrong. Welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. This is a supplement to the teaching ministry of Calvary Tucson where I pastor. If you've been watching a a video or a teaching that we've done, and you've got a question about that video, then please feel free to ask it. Now, you can ask any question that you want about the nuances of the Christian life, about the scriptures, uh, about prophecy, and um, I'm not saying I've got all the answers to it, um, but we'll give you the best answer that we can from the pages of scripture um, without overstretching, without pretending like we've got the answer when we don't really have it at all. But it's good to have you guys joining us and logging on. Our first question today comes from TC1 at the end of our latest Q&A. She had asked a question about loving someone who she was annoyed by. And um, I just want to say, first of all, so so I entitled this Q&A, um, How to Love the Unlikable. Not how to love the unlovable, but how to love the unlikable. Uh, first of all, we're all going to have people that annoy us. Uh, our personalities sometimes clash, and there are people that do things that become annoying. One of the things I find really annoying is when you're talking to someone and rather than engaging in a conversation, they're just caught up in whatever it is that they want to say. And I know Christians and mature Christians who will do this and it just drives me crazy. Um, I'm also annoying to some people. I'm uh, pretty... Um, I got pretty, you know, quick on everything that I do. I'm just kind of, you know, I'm I'm a get up and go guy. And um, sometimes people that are more laid back can really be annoyed um, by my get up and go and just get things done. I remember early on in the in the church um, when uh, I was much younger, in my twenties, and um, we had started the church, and I would be walking from one place to another through the sanctuary, maybe before service. I'd see a couple people and nod at them, but I'd keep walking because I'm a get it done guy. And um, I remember people getting really upset that I couldn't stop and talk to them, have enough time to stop and talk to them, and I had to learn how to take more of an interest in people because that was an obvious flaw with me. But the truth is, is that we can all we can all have people that get on our nerves, that grade us the wrong way. And the Bible tells us that we are supposed to walk in love towards everybody. So the question is, how do you love the unlikable? How do you love someone that you really just don't want to be around them? I want to go through 1 Corinthians 13, but not, not just to go through it. I want to look at it as to an answer on how we can love those who are unlikable lovable. I think one of the first things for us to understand is that love, agape love, is a decision, not a feeling. Feelings can follow. You can become fond of somebody. You can have feelings of love towards someone, but you've got to love them anyway. You've got to, you're supposed to love your enemy. How are you going to feel about your enemy? In the, uh, in the words of the theologian country singer, Clint Black, love is something that you do. So, regardless of the person that you're loving. So, here I just want to read first. I want to go through 1 Corinthians 13, but we want to ask the question why we're going through it. Um, What does this say about loving those who are unlovable? So, let's just go ahead and take a look at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 13. This is the love chapter. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. This is in the context of the gifts of the Spirit in chapter 12, which include tongues. And the proper use of tongues in churches in chapter 14. 
And so here we're in it when it says, if I could speak with the tongues of men and angels but don't have love, it means nothing. Hey, look, you can have the gift of tongues, you can have every gift, but if you don't walk in love, it doesn't mean anything. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, then uh, and have not and and have all faith so that I could remove mountain. That's the gift of faith. But have not love, I am nothing. So having all the gifts of the Spirit operating but not walking in love, you are nothing. It doesn't gain you anything. You're nothing. And then it says, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Now that's important too. I could give everything away, but I don't gain anything. If I don't have love, it means nothing. And then finally, um, and finally, and though I, um, let's see, oh, and give my body to be burned. Yeah, you could actually give your body to be burned. What I missed, uh, number two? Yeah, I, I made it through number two, right? Yeah. So, um, I give my body to be burned. It doesn't mean anything. Although I pay the ultimate price. If I don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. So, here is the definition, the biblical definition of love. Love suffers long. So, in order to suffer long, there's got to be something that causes you to suffer. So, love suffers long with people. This is also translated love is patient. I, I used to, when I would do a lot of weddings, I had a little joke right here. I'd be reading through this. I would say, love suffers long and is kind. Love doesn't suffer long and is mean, but love suffers long. So, right away, suffering is connected to love. And the annoyance, someone who annoys you because of personality quirks, is not much suffering, right? But love suffers long and is kind. The Bible says, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. The Bible says, anyone who's in a sin, you who are who are spiritual, go to such one in a spirit of gentleness and restore them. The Bible says, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be able to teach, gentle to all, correcting those that are in opposition. So, we are to be kind to everyone. And if we're going to love our enemies, which maybe is even a harder question, then we want to be kind. Love does not envy. When someone has certain things that happen that are good in their lives, we don't envy it because we really are happy that they've received it. Love does not, I'm sorry, love does not parade itself. Um, that is, when there's something good that happens to us, we don't parade ourselves in those good things. That makes other people feel poorly. Sometimes you'll be talking to people and they always want to one-up you. Um, I've seen this with pastors. They'll, they'll ask, how's your church going? And you'll say, it's doing pretty good. We just got a new building, um, so many thousand square feet. And then they'll go, yeah, our building's this many thousand square feet. Which, okay, it's bigger. But it didn't have anything to do with the conversation. They're just now throwing in what theirs is. And it, it's kind of like puff, being puffed up. And I've struggled with that as well. You hear something from somebody and you want to tell them exactly what it is that you've had. And I've learned just to go, no, I don't need to add those things in. Love does not behave rudely. So if there's someone who we're having trouble liking, they bug us. We don't behave rudely to that person. We go out of our way. Love does not seek its own. You're actually trying to seek what's good for them and happy for them. Um, Philippians tells us that we are to not put our only thing, look out for our own interest, but also the interest of others. Love thinks no evil. We're not hoping something bad happens to them. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity. We're not happy when sinful things have, have brought destruction into their lives. Love rejoices in the truth. I like that. 
we rejoice in in the truth and really wanting to see people grow and mature and then bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So you're not going to make a mistake when you're loving someone who annoys you or you're loving your enemy or you're loving someone who is out to get you. Again, I guess that would be the enemy. But all of these things are things we do, not the way we feel. So it seems like a difficult question when we talk about love and we're thinking of love as, a, of, as emotion. Like if the biblical definition of love were, um, you gotta have, you know, you, you gotta feel good towards people, you gotta have that, form, that warm fuzzy towards them. If it was emotional, then that might be really hard. But if someone's bothering me and I still go out of my way, to show them kindness, to pay, be patient with them, then I'm loving them. Same thing with my enemy. When someone is an outright enemy, then I find myself really being patient with them. It's what we do. It's a decision that we've made that we're going to treat everybody the way that they should be treated. Jesus said this, if you love the Father with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, those are the two greatest commandments and you fulfill all of the law and the prophets by doing so. I don't have to keep the 613 laws that we find in the Old Testament. I just have to walk in love towards people. And when I walk in love towards people, patient, kind, not puffed up, not seeking his own, my own, then I can find that I can really and truly love anyone, uh, even someone who is, uh, who is truly unlikable. Uh, one of the best places to practice, one of the best places to practice um, walking in love is to drive in love. When someone pulls in front of you and slows down, when someone cuts you off, when someone gives you a creative hand signal, and then you respond by, by suffering long, by not seeking your own, by being kind, now you are practicing the very things that we are supposed to do in love. I think out of all the things that God commands us to do, we have more opportunities to walk in love towards anyone than any other thing. See, if um, the Bible says um, to bless those who curse you, how often do people curse you? I hope not very often, but when they do, you have an opportunity to now do what he's told you to do. How often do people offend you and need your forgiveness? And you may be really upset that they would do what they did and that they would offend you in such a way, but it gives you an opportunity to be able to forgive it's an opportunity. We don't have those opportunities all the time. I, I, I say to college students who have professors who are mocking them in their classes, you won't always have an opportunity to bless those who are cursing you or who are persecuting you. Rejoice in the persecution that you have because these are opportunities for us to be able to do those kind of things. So having a person in our lives that bothers us and yet we are committed to walking in love towards them is an opportunity to do the things that Jesus has called us to do. All right, so thank you very much, uh, TC. I appreciate uh, your question. Um, we have a question from Jari um, about hell. Uh, Jari says, and we had a teaching this last Thursday night on hell. Uh, Jari says, part one, follow up on hell. Does it the message give unbelievers who don't want to believe the benefit of doubt that they might say, well, I'll perish and no longer exist despite some um, uh, chastity or chastening? Um, yeah, I, I understand this question, Jari. 
and I've gotten this a lot because for a long time, I mean, the, I, I got to think the entire time that I've been, been teaching, I've talked about different levels of punishment, that God was gonna, gonna beat some with few stripes and some with many stripes. And what does that look like? And in our study last week, we talked about the condition of immortality, conditional immortality. Is the soul of an individual immortal? Um, Socrates, um, the Greek philosophers, three, four, 400 years before the time of Christ, thought that the soul was immortal. The early church was mixed. They talked about eternal punishment, but it was rare. They talked a lot more about perishing. And in the Old Testament, it was that way as well. Now, I'd said in my study on Wednesday night, I don't know exactly where I'm at. I'm not ready to, to say the duration of hell is eternal. I'm not ready to say the duration of hell is not. Um, also, the nature of hell, it's not, it's torment, it's not torture, it's not Dante's Inferno. It's people being in torment. And that C.S. Lewis used to say, hell is locked from the inside. And the torment is the torment of their own sinful, self-seeking minds. And they don't want God. There's, uh, C.S. Lewis said, no one is in hell that doesn't want to be there. It's a place where they are at and there's no fire. He didn't believe that. The, he thought the fire was an analogy. And quite frankly, the fire probably is an analogy. We'll talk about that in a future study on hell. I know we've got at least one, maybe two or three more studies on it as well. So your question, Jari, when you start talking about being beaten with few stripes, maybe the duration of hell isn't forever. Here's what you still have to have, okay? You have to have a resurrection of the dead because the Bible talks clearly about that. There's no way to explain that away. The Bible talks about judgment. So you will stand before the throne of God, the books will be opened, and you will be judged. Then the Bible talks about punishment. And that punishment will be just. And we don't know how severe that punishment's gonna be. Here's where we don't know. Let's, let's just say that the duration of hell is after you've been punished, you will be destroyed. You will be burned up. The body and the soul will be destroyed in hell. Let's just say that's what Jesus meant. He wasn't using an analogy when he said, don't fear him who can kill um, the body, but fear him who can kill the body and soul in hell. So talking about fearing God, making sure things are right between you and God. So let's just say that that's the case. So this person says, well, I'm fine with resurrection, judgment, and punishment, but you don't know the level to which you've offended God. And maybe you don't understand how bad it is. And maybe we don't understand how bad sin is. And where um, a non-believer might think, well, you know what, I'm just going to be punished a little bit. But the punishment may be much greater than what you think. And this may be the, the passages that have severity in judgment. The gnashing of teeth, which is may probably anger instead of pain where there will be screaming and gnashing of teeth. At least that's the way that C.S. Lewis took those passages. Um, that, and also not understand the holy God we've offended. I use the analogy that if you punch somebody walking down the street, random person, and you don't have any record, don't have any problems, you're probably going to get off pretty light. But if you, go, if you can somehow get close enough to the king of England to punch him, now you got a lot of trouble or punch the, the president of the United States, find out what happens to you. 
So now your offense is against God. And because God is the creator of the universe, how much worse is the punishment going to be? We, and I, I'm afraid that when the church went from conditional immortality in the first 300 years, maybe 400, being the main area, and they used very biblical language that talked about eternal fire, eternal punishment, the eternal things. Um, but is it the, is it eternal fire? Does that mean you're going to be burned forever with it? In other words, eternal fire, I think it's in Jude that talks about, Jude 7, that talks about the eternal fire being um, consuming Sodom and Gomorrah. But if, if people are afraid, if I don't make hell look as bad as I can make it look, then people are, are going are gonna to not be afraid to not go. The end result of that, that by, that's bad, by the way, that's bad theology. If I'm now saying, I want to try to save people by making hell look as bad as it can possibly look. And if anybody wants to try to be biblical and make it sound like it's not as bad, like beaten with few stripes, then they're going to cause people to want to go. I, I think the opposite is true, Jari. I think if we make it as bad as it could possibly be, we make it a Dante's Inferno. We're like, God's going to fillet the skin off of grandma's for all of eternity. He's going to broil the skin of grandma's, regenerate it, boil it, regenerate it. And even, even babies who are born are going to go to hell. They make it as bad as they can. Now you are maligning God because God is a God who will have a dungeon torture chamber for all of eternity. And now there are people who say, I won't serve a God who will do that. And so in your hopes of making it as bad as it can be to get people to turn there, you end up having people who reject the idea because you, Jari, wouldn't have a torture chamber forever torturing your enemies. And so, no, I'm not concerned. Um, your, your question, I'll bring it in here again. Um, Follow up on hell, does the message give unbelievers who don't want to believe the benefit of the doubt that they might say, I will perish, um, um, I will no longer exist? Um, no, I don't think that it does. I, I think it should still be a place, it's a place no one wants to go. And if I had, let's just think about this. Um, I come across an opportunity to to steal a million dollars. And I, I look at that and I think, you know, I got, I don't know, maybe a 10% chance of getting caught here. I can get away with it. But if I do, then I'm going to go to jail the rest of my life. That would be a deterrent. But if I had a chance to steal $10 million and I had a 10% chance of getting caught and I figured I'm going to go to jail for 10 years if I steal this money. Does that 10 year of me in jail deter me as much as, as, as the rest of my life in jail? Yes, every bit as much for me. I don't go, oh, it's worth the risk. I'll just have to do 10 years in prison. No, I don't wanna do 10 years in prison. And so I'm not gonna steal the million dollars. And I think that's probably the best analogy that we can give. We certainly don't want to malign God by making it worse than it is, making God look worse, we want, just want to be biblical, right? In everything that we do, we just want to be biblical. All right. 
And so Kunjari had a part two to his question here. Let's bring that in. Um, part two, um, if the other is true, how have we been taught for a long time hell is fire and brimstone and that, the, and that motivates people to come to Christ? I don't want to suffer and burn forever. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want, who's, torment is not torture, but torment forever is bad. And so, if you have to have torture forever, again, this isn't a biblical argument that you've got. It's not like you're going back to the Bible and saying, but the Bible says this, and so therefore they must be tortured forever, or hell must be as bad as it possibly can be. People writhing in flames for all of eternity, feeling the heat and burning. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a logical argument by which you're trying to get people to make a decision to come to Christ rather than teaching what the Bible says, which should be enough. Look, God said this, don't fear him who can kill the body, but the one who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. So let's say that destroy is destroy it. God said, fear him, fear that one. And so there may be some who say that, who knows? There may be some who would say, you know what, I, I, I'll take it. If I'm just, I'm just gonna be burned up eventually, then fine, I'll do that. It's a bad choice. But there are still people today who will say, I won't serve a God that would do something like that. Now, that's not saying that either one of those are good options, right? All right, Jari, thank you very much for that question. I think it's a really good question because I think a lot of people think about it. And I think that pastors have indeed tried to make hell look as bad as they can to try to scare people into hell. It's not a good way to get people saved. I'll, I'll tell a story here in a moment, but let's move on to a couple more questions. Um, Kimberly says, hi, Pastor. Malachi 4, 5, and 6, is this a prophecy of the transfiguration? Um, and then it kind of gets cut off, but let's go there. Let's go to Malachi. So that is last book of the Bible, four, I mean, last book of the Old Testament, four, five, and six. So, last two verses of the Old Testament. That's what you want, right? Malachi four, verses five and six. And then it says, um, then it says this, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike you with a curse. And that's the last thing it says. So let me get back over to what your question was. Um, is this a prophecy of the transfiguration? No, I don't believe it is. Um, so Elijah appears on the Mount of Transfiguration. So Elijah must come before the great and terrible day of the Lord, right? Um, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. No, it's not, um, it's not that. It is instead a prophecy that he's going to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord, which is, the, um, which is the, the time Jesus said was in the future, the tribulation period. He said, there's a time coming upon the earth that is worse than anything this world will ever see and anything that's ever going to see. We have not had that since Jesus until today, so it's still in the future. And so the great and terrible day of the Lord is the marking for Elijah to come, and Elijah's got to come back before that. I think it's possible he's one of the two witnesses. There's no way to be 100% sure. I love how people get 100% sure on things. They get really dogmatic about it. There's no way to be 100% sure, 
but I, I think that's a good possibility that that's who it is. All right. So thank you very much. Um, let's see. Uh, we, I'm looking for another question here. Um, yeah. So, um, Kim, Empress Kimberly had to resubmit her question. Um, sorry, Pastor Micah, four, five, and six is the prophecy of the transfiguration, John the Baptist and the two witnesses, or all three. Um, or none of them. Because the, the, the prophecy itself is that, I'll just read it again. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hot hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So, whatever it is that Elijah is doing during that time frame, it is, it is him bringing people back to Christ. The, one of the two witnesses fits that. John the Baptist did that by saying, make the way straight, but we know he wasn't Elijah. Jesus said, if you can handle it, um, he came in the power of Elijah, but Elijah must come. So it can't be, it can't be John the Baptist. And it might, it's not, it's certainly not the transfiguration. The transfiguration was Jesus showing up in his power, in his kingdom, that he had fulfilled all the law and the prophets. That's why Moses and Elijah were there, because Jesus had fulfilled all that was written in the law and the prophets. And he was in his glory, in his kingdom. And the kingdom indeed had come. Um, and, and James, John, and Peter saw Jesus in his kingdom, the fulfillment of that passage. But I don't believe that that is the fulfillment of Elijah returning. Okay? I think that is still out there. So we have uh, a question from Sharon uh, from YouTube. Do we have anybody else besides you? Uh, that today, I think we do actually have some Facebook stuff up questions. What is the significance of the Old Testament referring to the temple when they say the temple for my name rather than saying build a temple for me or for God? Right. So, what is the difference between God saying Jerusalem, is, build the temple where I choose to put my name and God saying build the temple where uh, I choose to for me, uh, what would what would the difference of that be? I think it's talking about the significance of the power of the name of God, and there is power in that name, just like there's power in the name of Jesus. He's been given a name that is above every name, and Yahweh is a powerful name. We say Hallelujah, and the Yah there is 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 God. Praise Yahweh, Hallelujah. Um, and so God chose to put his name in Jerusalem when they built the temple there. The name of God would carry all of the power with it. And I think that's the significance of the name. Now, I'll be honest with you, Sharon, th there may be more. This, this may be an area that would warrant some really diving in. Um, if I were going through, if I were teaching through, um, I think it's 2 Samuel, and I came to the passage where God says to David, um, build the temple here in Jerusalem because this is where I've chosen to put my name, which makes Jerusalem a significant city. I would take time to, to look at every time the Bible says, I will use my name, what God meant when he said my name. I would, I would start diving into passages to try to find more clarity on it. Um, 
I don't have that right now because I haven't I haven't done that. I haven't di dived into that particular question. I think it's a really good question. Um, I think it does have to do with the power that is in the name of God. And you say, well, God would be there in power if God built a temple. They built a temple for God. But there's something about God's name on the lips of God's people that isn't said in vain. Remember, we're not supposed to take the name of the Lord in vain. So I think there's something there. But I also think that there could be some real research done and we could learn a lot by, <clears throat> excuse me, really looking into, uh, no water here today, um, really looking into what it means uh, God's name and why God would want to put his name there. I think it's a great question and it's worthy to really dive in even more. Okay, so we have a question from Matthew Wilson. Matthew says, question, uh, hello, Pastor Robert. In Luke 6, 18, it tells us to love our enemies. How much can agape love play the role in this? Thank you, Matthew. I think it's got to play the entire role in it because phileo love is a friendship love. And I don't know about you, but I have a hard time having that phileo love towards someone who hates me and is an enemy. Um, the um, sturge love, the love for family, if a family enemy is a friend, you can still have that love for them. Sometimes sturge is used as love for things, so you could connect to that. Um, I, I think agape love's gotta be that love, you know, that we just read. We read the definition of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. All of the things we said about loving someone who's unlikable are true about loving someone who is your enemy. Um, like I said, Clint Black has a song, Love is Something That You Do. It's got to be something that you do. And regardless of feelings, you may not want to bless those who curse you, but you bless them anyway, and that's love. You may not want to be long-suffering and kind, but you're long-suffering and kind anyway, and that's love. Love is an action that you've taken. The Bible tells us as husbands to love our wives. So we make decisions. I'm going to be long-suffering. I'm going to be kind. I'm not going to seek my own way. That's what we're supposed to do. It's interesting. The Bible never uses the term agape to say that a wife is to agape her husband. That doesn't mean the Bible says love one another. And husbands being loved by their wives wouldn't even include that. So it doesn't mean they're free from that. But it's interesting that instead it says to phileo them, be friends with them and to like them to the women and to the men it says agape your wives which is disconnected from feelings and it's a decision that you make to do so yeah that would play the role in enemies all right so we have a question from psych man psych man good to see you psych man says um on one thing standing in the way for me of soul destruction doctrine would be when jesus said the worm doesn't die Mark 6, 44 and 45. What does this mean, please? Thanks, dude. Um, yeah, I would too say that if if Jesus talks about Gehenna, which that's the word for hell there, and, and he says, it's better for you to cut off your hand um, than to go into eternity with, and go into eternity without a hand, your right hand, than it is to go into Gehenna where the worm never dies and the fire never goes out. So is he then, can you take that Gehenna and that statement and say, you're going into Gehenna where the worm never dies and the fire never goes out. Does that mean the soul of an individual is forever? Now, again, I want you to understand, I'm defending the position as someone who is undecided on it. 
And so I'm looking at this passage and saying, does this passage prove to me eternal conscious torment? That's what I'm looking at. So I'm looking up a passage out of Isaiah now, and I want to show you, uh, first of all, that the term Gehenna is used nine times in the New Testament, and eight of those times are by Jesus. One of those times is James when he uses it completely in a metaphorical way, when he says the tongue is the fire of Gehenna. So that's like, okay, well, how is that metaphor used? And I want to say here now for those who are listening that there was never a garbage dump in Gehenna. For those who, I don't know how many teachings you get that you see where people will say that Gehenna was a garbage dump and it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't a garbage dump at all. It was, um, they, they, for sure, it's, it, the way you'll hear a scholar say it is there's no evidence that there was a garbage dump in Gehenna. But here's the thing. Garbage dumps don't go, that's what, that's what archaeology search for. When you're going onto a site, you're looking for the garbage. You're looking for the way through their garbage. And there's evidence for how they lived and what they did when you can go through their garbage. And so we know there wasn't one in Gehenna. And so the idea that Jesus said, well, there's a burning dump there. You're going to be thrown into there where the worm doesn't die and the fire never goes out. Well, did the worms die in Gehenna? Let's just say it was a garbage dump. Did the worms die? And if the fire continually burned, it was consuming something. It wasn't just going out. Um, however, there's this passage in Isaiah 66. Let me see if I can get to it, if I can find the right passage. Um, this is the last verse in the book of Isaiah. And I'm going to give you the last, I'm going to read you the last two verses. And let me just preface this with this. The word Gehenna was used in their day by, by rabbis. We have writings from the century before and during the first century and the century after of people using Gehenna to talk about some kind of a torment. So this was something, Jesus was talking about something that was seen in their day. He didn't come up with the phrase, he was using the phrase in the culture that he was in. Number two, the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. Was, was, was God said, no longer will it be called the Valley of Hinnom, but it will now be called the Valley of Slaughter because they had caused their children to pass through fire there. Okay? Now I'm going to come to the end of the book of Isaiah. The end of the book of Isaiah, like Revelation, brings us to the very end of the world. Okay? And let me go ahead and bring this up for you. And I want you to show you that Jesus is also quoting the Old Testament. So whenever there's a quote from the Old Testament, you've got to go back to that Old Testament. You've got to go back to that passage. So verse 23 says, And it shall come to pass that from the new moon, to one from new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all flesh will come and worship before me, says the Lord. So this is during the millennium when people are coming to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. But what had happened before the millennium? What was the right one thing that happened right before the millennium? Armageddon. And in Armageddon, God killed the armies of the world with the sword that came out of his mouth that had come and to battle against each other and then turned and fought against him. So look at the next verse now. So they're going to come from one new moon and one Sabbath. And now Israel, remember, um, the, the Sabbath is, uh, the millennium is very, is Jewish. He's from Jerusalem, ruling on the throne of David. He's ruling over Israel, keeping the promises to Israel that he's making. And now he says this, and they will go forth and look upon the corpses of men who have transgressed. 
Now, we know that they made it as far as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. That eventually turns into the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley runs into the Valley of Gehenna. And so, since the Valley of Gehenna is called the Valley of Slaughter, when they go to Jerusalem, if you look at, if you look at the old walls of Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom was right outside the wall of Jerusalem. And so, if they go forth when they're going there to worship and they look on the corpses, they aren't looking at people being tormented here. They're looking on the corpses of men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They're, they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So, if, and this is one of the things that drives me crazy about teachings on hell, is that, that people will, will use a particular passage and they'll just say it and then say, and that proves it. Where the worm never dies, the fire never goes out, that's eternal. Worm doesn't die, fire doesn't go out. But then when you go back and you look at the Old Testament reference that's being quoted and it's corpses and people who are an abhorrence who are not being tormented by a fire that doesn't go out and a worm that never dies, but where there may be a fire consuming the bodies and worms that are eating the bodies. Isaiah 66, uh, what was it, 6624 has to be taken into account. And so, now, what does that tell me about the eternality of hell or the conditional immortality of the soul? I think if, if the Old Testament makes references to corpses and Jesus doesn't say they're going to be tormented forever by the fire or the worms, he just says where the worm never dies and the fire never goes out, could that be a reference to corpses? He's talking to those who are Jewish, when you think of this psych man, and they are gonna, they're gonna be destroyed by the Romans who are gonna burn things and probably and burn things in the, in the valley of Gehenna. There would be corpses that would be eaten by worms. And so, was Jesus making a reference to eternity? Was he, make, he, he had to be making a reference to Isaiah 66, 24 because he uses the exact same terminology. And this is what most people don't know. I'm going to say that most people, because people don't teach on hell, most people don't know that Isaiah 66, 24 quoted that. They just have no idea. All right, psych man, I appreciate that. And um, if you have a follow-up on that, I'd love to hear it. Okay? Um, again, I'm, I'm just saying... Well, 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 let's just go ahead and take some more questions here, and um, I'll, I'll, I'll make some ra a couple wrap-up points. Um, Matthew uh, Wilson has a question. Matthew says, Hello, Pastor Robert. In Matthew 5, 43-48, it calls us to love our enemies. Oh, so we've already looked at that one. Maybe it got uh, duplicated a couple of times. All right, so we did look at that. So we're going to take the question from Melissa um, instead. Hello, Melissa. She joins us from Facebook. Good to see Facebook's working today. Melissa says, Pastor, what website or book would you recommend to utilize that breaks down each chapter of the Bible for a better understanding of the Word? Um, I'm going to give you a couple of suggestions. And when, before, now I can look up, I can look things up. I have Logos Bible software which has a lot of commentaries on it. It's got the BDAG um, word study. It's got a, a, a lot of different things that I bought over the years. Before I had that, I had to buy books. 
and then I would go to my office where my library was, would surround me with books, and then I would go and I would pull off a few books. And when I started studying, I but remember in Calvary Chapel, we teach through the Bible. So we're teaching just say through the book of Isaiah. So I want to find out, and, and I've purchased as many commentaries on Isaiah and individual writers on Isaiah that I could. So I, I want to know, um, I want a PhD guy that did a thesis on Isaiah. I want to read as much as I can about him. But I had the, the Haley's Bible Handbook and Manners and Customs. And I had a couple of different Manners and Customs books. You can get, I can't remember the names of them, but you can get Manners and Customs books. And Melissa, these, uh, first of all, the Haley's Bible Handbook covers every chapter in the Bible and will tell you different things that are going on in that chapter. So, um, it gives you information about the setting of the chapter you're reading. Extremely helpful. Second is a manners and customs, which would tell you the customs and manners of that day. And um, I would get I would get the newest one I could get, the one that's that's been written the latest that it possibly can be. And if you get these two books, you can read those two, read the chapter, then read those two. Let God speak to you through the chapter first, the Word of God, but then read the Haley's Handbook, and um, I assume you can get them on Kindle now. But read Haley's Handbook on the chapter you're in, and read a Manners and Customs on it. Now, on top of that, you could get like I, when I was when I was pastoring and, and didn't have. Um, couldn't just go and do a lot of research. I didn't have um, logo software on my Bible. Um, I had a Ryrie study Bible. I would make reference to that. I had a couple other study Bibles that I would make, a Schofield study Bible that I had in my library. I didn't use it regularly, but it was in my library. I could make reference to that. <clears throat> I had Matthew Henry commentaries. I had the pulpit Bible, I had the pulpit commentary, which I think every pastor back then had in their um, library. I had Matthew Henry's commentary. Um, I had Warren Wiersbe's entire commentary on the Bible. Um, he writes individual books for each chapter, and those could be really good. It was called the B series, Be Encouraged, um, Be Joyful for the book of Philippians. Um, I had J. Vernon McGee's. I had every book from the, uh, of, of the Bible from J. Vernon McGee that he talked about and, and went through it all. So there's a lot of options out there for you to be able to get them. Um, Pastor Chuck has done every, um, Pastor Chuck has done every book of the Bible. Sorry, I need to turn on my, if you heard the ding, it's because I didn't turn on my Do Not Disturb. All right. Um, so anyway, Pastor Chuck has gone through every book of the Bible and you can buy his commentary there. John Corson has a commentary for every book of the Bible. Now commentary is just going to be there comment on it. So it's like a teacher who gives it to you. Um, I'll give you another resource that you can look at without buying anything. And that is David Guzek's Enduring Word. Um, and his Enduring Word commentary goes through every book of the Bible. Um, and uh, he's a friend. And I'll tell you what, so many pastors um, do use David Gusek's, um I'm just seeing if I can pull up Enduring Word here, hold on. Um, they use his commentary. I know that because I read his commentary and then I will hear somebody teaching on it and they're saying the things that David Guzek said. And I'm like, you know what? You can do that. That's good to do, okay? But give him credit. Say David Guzek says in his commentary, 
and then give them credit. I, I like giving credit in teachings. I think it's so much better because not only am I saying it, when I give credit to someone, I can say, David Guzek says this, and here's what I, now you're bringing another witness. It's like you're calling someone else as a witness to the things uh, that you are teaching. So I just want to put this up on the screen for you. So this is David Guzek and this is Enduring Word. And, and this is just Enduring, just look up Enduring Word and you'll be able to pull this up. If you scroll down to the very bottom, you will get to his commentary. And when you get to his commentary, then you can see that he's got some that he's got teachings on. He was the pastor of Calvary Chapel in, um, Oh, what was the city in California? I went to visit him there. Um, uh, Santa Barbara, Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. And so a lot of these teachings are from him from, from Santa Barbara, but um, you can go to it and let's just go to Isaiah. Let's click on that. Let me click on Isaiah here. You know, do you want to click on the audio now? I want to click on this and then I'm going to take you out of here, but I'm going to scroll to the very end. I want to get you dizzy by having to look at that. I'm going to go to the very last verse. Um, let's see, Isaiah. Oops, where am I in? Where did I go? I'm here. I'm trying to be tricky here. I'm going to go to Isaiah again. Isaiah. I want to go to chapter 66. And then I want to scroll down to the very back. And then I'm going to just look at it with you. And so now what we're doing is we're looking at, at David Guzek's commentary on Isaiah 66. I'm going to the last verse here. Let's see where he says. Um, Go forth and look at the corpses who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die, nor the fire shall be quenched. They shall be. And it shall come to pass, he says, all flesh shall come and worship before me. Here God describes the ultimate triumph through the majestic book of Isaiah. The nations have been judged and often con- uh, and often condemned, but God has ultimate plan for the nations seen in the fulfillment of Revelation 5, 9 through 10. He says, all flesh will come and worship before me. Then he talks about the context of that, the new moons, the significance. See, so he's going over the passage. So when you want to study something and you want to know what it says, this is a great resource. And he's got every single book that is in the Bible in those resources. Um, All right. So um, David Guzik also does a Q&A, by the way. I think he does a weekly um, Q&A as well. And I think that you will be, um, you'll be blessed by him. Uh, he was not only a pastor of Santa Barbara, of Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara, but he was also, um, I think the dean, he would call it the, the dean of a Bible study, I mean, of a Bible college for a while. Um, very, very knowledgeable in the word and you can learn a lot. All right, Melissa, hopefully that's enough information for you about some things that you can get. But if you're just going to get, you want one book to do it, um, Haley's Bible Handbook, Haley's Bible Handbook, latest edition, and then second, get a Manners and Customs. It's going to help you out tremendously. All right. We have a question from Walter. Walter says, I've been trying to make new friends at church, but a lot of times people give me the cold shoulder and just walk away especially when I talk about personal problems. How should I respond? Mm. Um, All right, Walter. Well, first of all, sorry that you're feeling at a distance in a church. We don't know what church this is, right? Um, So I'm just going to give you a couple basics. And this this might be a little hard to hear. It might be like I'm picking on you, but I'm not, okay? First of all, the Bible says, he who wants friends must himself first be friendly. So you want to make sure that you are 
that you are taking an interest in people, that you are, that you're listening to them, that you're not just bouncing off of, of people to be able to talk about yourself and the difficulties that you're having, but that you are really being a friend. So that means you're hearing their difficulties and listening to what they say. That means you really care. It doesn't mean that you're just, look, we can tell when someone is surface with us. We can tell when we're talking to someone and they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, okay, yeah, oh, sure, okay, yeah. Well, you know what else? I had this happen to me. We can tell when they're not listening to us and they want, but when you really listen, and this is a skill that a lot of people don't have today. They have to work on listening skills. You should be able to have a conversation with someone, see them a week later, and be able to ask them how a couple of things are going from your conversation because you've learned how to listen. And there's a lot out there on listening skills. And there's even some secular stuff that's really good on it. Um, some of the stuff that I like is to repeat back to someone. When you're having trouble listening, when you're just like, you don't care about that person, you're just like going on, you really want to care about them now, then you start to listen and then you repeat back to them. You know, something like, Wow, that must be a that must be a blast to have your kids coming, you know, and visiting you from Tennessee. What's Tennessee like? So you're really talking to them. You're not just taking in information so you can spit back out. And these listening skills are really important because it's showing that you really care. So he who wants friends must himself first be friendly. So you don't want to just talk to people in order to unload your difficulties. You take a true interest in them. You start praying for people. You're talking with people. You're building a relationship with them. Then, when there's a relationship that's built, a lot more of your personal problems will become more significant to them. If, if the first time that you meet someone in a social setting, church, and you just pour out all your problems to them, you, you haven't gotten to know them, you haven't taken an interest in them, you don't know, it, it, it can come across as not really taking an interest in someone. Now, should they do it that way? Should they just be listening to your problems and respond to it? Maybe so, but we're talking about reality here. Christians are not perfect. No one is, people aren't perfect. And people are often self-obsessed. Uh, self, um, and if, if you're self-obsessed, I'm not picking on you, I'm just, just sharing this. And I don't know if you are or not. But if you're self-obsessed and you just want to talk about your problems, and they're self-obsessed and they want to talk about their problems, or they don't know you very well, they just met you, and now there's all these problems, they're carrying a heavy load emotionally for you, and there hasn't been time for a relationship to be built. The first thing that you should do in, in developing friendships and talking with people is finding out how things are with them, taking a real interest in them, being able to repeat back to them whatever it is, difficulties and hardships that they have. And out of that is going to come a natural flow of, how are you, Walter? And then you can say, oh, I got, it. I got this going on. It doesn't mean you're telling them about all your, your personal problems, but it means that you are now beginning to share with someone. So there's some work that has to be done. 
I say the same thing as well, Walter, about speaking into someone's life. So I, I meet somebody at church. Right away, I notice there's a few sinful things that are said or, or done. And I think I got to take care of this. But I'm talking to them now. And I do not correct them. They may have said something to me that is just blatantly wrong. And I don't, I don't correct them. I, because I want to correct them in a way that's going to work and I've got to be able to speak into their lives. So in order to speak into their lives, I have to have a relationship with them. Just flip it around the other way. If um, somebody who doesn't know you at all comes to you and criticizes you, like someone leaves me a comment on the YouTube and it's just that they don't know me at all and they didn't make a statement. It doesn't mean anything to me. I can move on pretty quick from that. I may try to evaluate and see what's in true because Bill Bright said in every criticism there's a kernel of truth and I want to know that I, I want to be the best pastor I can be. I want to be the best person I can be towards other people. But if I know someone who's a close friend, I've been a friend for years, and they come to me and they say, you know, I see a problem. Now they've got my ear because I know that they care about me. And so you have to give people a chance to get invested in a friendship with you. And how do you do that? You do that by taking an interest in them. You do that by not going to church to say, how can I, how can I get pe these people around me to help me? How come it doesn't, you know, they're giving me the cold shoulder when I tell my personal problems? Instead going, how can I go and I wanna find people to encourage and bless? That's what I wanna do. And you're gonna develop friendships and people are gonna care about you. But if all you're doing is going into church to find somebody to listen to your problems, I'll tell you where you go. You go into the prayer room. You go up and talk to one of the pastors um, that are up front. That's where you go when you've got a personal problem. But when you're trying to make friends with people, you don't want to just pour out all of your problems right away to them or even within the first, you know, a time, time of developing a relationship with them. So, be friendly, take a true interest in them, pray for them, get to know them, be loving towards them, and then I believe that it will help you um, in being able to have people who will really care about you, which is what we want. And know, hey, I'm invested in Walter. I know him, I like him. I, so you got, you're going through this? Oh man, I'll be praying for you, all right? Now you've taken a true concern in him. If you just meet them and then all of a sudden everything's poured out and you haven't demonstrated care for them, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying this is what happens. So he who wants friends must insert first self be friendly. And are you taking as much interest in the personal problems of somebody else as you want them to take in your own personal problems? All right. Now, as I said, Walter might have been a little bit hard to hear, but I think I think it's good stuff and stuff that we it's important for us um, to be able to look at and to read, okay? So thank you very much. I appreciate um, your question, Walter, and I hope that you're able to really truly find deep friendships where you both are caring about each other in, um, in the relationship of a church, okay? So thank you very much. Um, let's see. Um, so I'm just looking for another question here. Um, we have a question from Jeffrey. 
to Jeffrey Baquet, or Baquet, and Jeffrey says, question, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.23 tells us we are spirit, soul, and body. Right. Um, there's also another reference in Hebrews 4 where it says the spirit of God can get in and separate the soul and the spirit. So we assume the body's already there, then there's the soul and the spirit. So those are the two passages in the Bible that put soul, spirit, and body in the same place. Matthew 10, 28 says, destroy the soul and body. If the body and soul are at some point destroyed, might the spirit live forever in hell? Thoughts. Yeah, I understand. Um, I understand that thought completely. Um, so most Bible teachers and scholars, people have really looked into it, are going to believe that the soul and the spirit are the same reference. Um, there are two passages in the Bible that talk about spirit, soul, and body. And there are people that talk about God being three and we having three by having spirit, soul, and body. Um, that we'd have a body, that we would have consciousness, and that we would have a spirit. Okay? So, let's just say that, that you're right. That God says the spirit's going to live forever, but the soul isn't. Well, how is the spirit going to be tortured in hell by fire? How is the spirit... Um, going to have consciousness without the soul. So, angels are spirits. Do angels not have a soul? What, what do we mean by soul? And the problem is, is that you've got all of these different authors of the Bible, right? you got how many different authors in the Bible? I forget now. Um, 28, maybe? Different authors? And they're, they're using the word soul. They aren't using it all in the same context. They don't use it in the same way. It's a 1,500-year period. Soul to one group may mean one thing, and soul to another group may mean something entirely different. So, um, maybe the spirit lives on forever in hell. Well, angels are spirit. The reason that there's a lake of fire is because it was created for Satan and his angels to be thrown into. So maybe the spirit gets thrown into hell. But what exactly does that mean about the torment? And how is and how is Satan and his angels going to be tormented being spirit as well? So good thoughts. Um, I do know and I and I don't understand why they say it, that there are some that say that us having a body, soul, and spirit is a is an obvious false teaching. And I've looked in this before and not been able to really figure out what they're saying. So I haven't really done a lot more um, on that. Um, but yeah, what exactly did Paul mean? Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 5 and let's take a look at the passage. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 And um, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love that in 1 Thessalonians, all of the chapters end talking about the return of Jesus. It is a book very much about the return of Christ. Um, he who calls you is faithful and will do it, brethren, pray for us, and he goes on. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, spirit, soul, and body. And um, could the spirit be immortal 
and the soul not be? And what would that look like? So these are questions, Jeffrey, that we would have to that we would have to consider if we want to start really going down that road. And maybe it, it's some time to, to be considerate about it. It's a good observation and it's a good thought. But what's left when the soul, what is, how does the soul differ from the spirit? And what's left when the soul and the spirit are destroyed? I mean, the soul and the body are destroyed if only the spirit were left. Or is the spirit a part of the soul as some people teach? Okay. Um, very good stuff in our Q&A today, guys. Um, very informational. I appreciate your questions. They're good. A, a lot of challenging stuff. I like that. Um, so we have a question about is sin the same with God? Uh, and um, let's see. I'm just I'm just going through here to see if we got any, how many more questions we got. Um, looking for uh, or the beginning one on our next study. Remember the beginning one might be spirit, soul, and, and 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 body one because I want to spend some time looking that up. All right. Um, all right. I don't see any more. I will take a look at this. I see a follow up by Jari about punching King George in the face. So we may talk about that. All right. So um, good to spend this time with you guys this last hour. We have a service in an hour. We're in the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter, um, the um, end of Acts chapter 9, where we're seeing the gospel expand from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria in the book of Acts. And it's gone into the, to, to Samaria by Philip. Then Paul gets saved in Damascus, where part of the church is, um, which today is in Syria. And then they're going to go down to Joppa. Joppa is in between Jerusalem and Caesarea Maritime, and it's a Gentile area. And here Peter does a couple of miracles, and we're going to talk about why miracles were done when he went into a new area right before the um, right before the Gentiles received the gospel in chapter ten. All right, I look forward to covering that with you guys tonight. Um, so join us six o'clock online if you're in Tucson. Six o'clock on the East Campus, and then tomorrow morning we'll have both campus services at both campuses. You can look up those at Calvary Chapel, Tucson. All right, so love you guys. Stay close to Jesus. Um, continue to, to, to search God's Word. We truly are on a truth quest. We want to know what God's Word says. We don't want to believe a lie, and so we want to pour into what it says. Um, we don't want to be contradictory just to be contradictory. We don't want to be uh, we don't want to not be on a truth quest, trying to back up what we already believe, but knowing what God's Word says. All right, so stay close to Jesus. Walk in the Spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Delight in the Lord that He could give you the desires of your heart. Abide in Christ. Let His Word abide in you. So when you ask whatever you desire, it will be given to you. All right, stay close to Jesus. Love you. We will see you guys later on. I am out.